Hey folks, welcome back to the Whatever Podcast with your silky voice host, Charlie Stone. I hope you enjoyed that last episode because I sure did. It was it was different for sure, but those of you who didn't particularly care for it will be happy to know that we're going back to business as usual this week. This week's topic actually comes from my dad, who has been insisting that the show is lacking the crime and conspiracy aspects that he was promised in the trailer for the show. So to satiate all of you true crime fans out there, this week we're going to be doing a uh, double feature of Unsolved Mysteries. Bum bum bum. Cue the mysterious music. Uh, I've just been told by my script that we do not have mysterious music. So um, just just a uh, just imagine in your head that the most mysterious, jazzy music just started playing, and you love it. I'm I'm talking about you would download this on Spotify if it existed. Um, that's the kind of music that's playing right now. So I hope you like it. Uh, a quick little content warning here. Uh, some of these mysteries are going to involve murder and I will be getting into the details involved. So, uh, just, just a content warning, just in case you don't like hearing about murder and gore. Uh, I want you to know that there's no shame in that. And if you still want to hear me tell you about stuff, I'll be back next week. Uh, okay, you've been warned. Uh, let's get into whatever. And I will, I will, um, the first half, the first half of this mystery double feature doesn't feature any death of any kind, really. Um, so if you're not okay with violence and crime scene um, details, then you can listen to the first half and be completely fine. So I'll warn you when we're about to start the second half. So if you're not okay with that, you can skip. So just for you, just for you. Uh, okay, let's get into it. The first half of our double feature is the mysterious antics of a certain criminal named by the media D.B. Cooper. On the day before Thanksgiving, 1971, Flight 305 took off from Portland, Oregon on its way to Seattle, Washington. A man going by the name Dan Cooper approached the counter of Northwest Orient Airlines and purchased a one-way ticket for the flight to Seattle and soon boarded. He was a nondescript white man about six feet tall with dark hair, sunglasses, and a suit, and he was in his mid-forties. He sat on the jet, ordered a bourbon and soda, and waited. A while into the flight, Mr. Cooper flagged down a flight attendant and handed her a note. She didn't read it at first because back then... Uh, a lot of guys on flights handed flight attendants and stewardesses notes um, with propositions, uh, and that's not great. Uh, so she didn't really think a lot of it. Uh, so, but Mr. Cooper flagged down this flight attendant again and said that she should read the note because he had a bomb in the suitcase he was carrying. She sat down next to Mr. Cooper and he opened the case. The stewardess saw what looked like a battery, lots of wires, and red sticks that could easily have been dynamite. Was the bomb real? Maybe, maybe not, but she wasn't taking any chances. 
Cooper sent her up to the cockpit with another note demanding $200,000 in $20 bills, four parachutes, and the absence of any funny business. But why would one person need four parachutes? The reason put forth by the FBI, and the one I like the most, is that Cooper figured they would provide him with a faulty parachute if they knew it was just him. But if he left room in his demands for a possible hostage situation, the authorities wouldn't take the chance. The flight only took about 30 minutes, and the crew was able to land near the Seattle airport without the passengers knowing what was going on. Cooper asked for the jet to land in a well-lit but remote area where the police would give him the money and the parachutes. Cooper's plan was not made clear in his note, but it was apparent that he was going to jump off of the jet mid-flight with a 20-pound bag of money. Cooper let all 36 passengers exit the jet, along with some of the staff, but kept the necessary staff on the vessel. Cooper also made one of the staff explain to him how to work the stairs at the back of the jet before takeoff, and was evasive about why he needed to know. Once they got going again, Cooper ordered the pilots to head for Mexico, but they would need to refuel on the journey, so Cooper said they could stop in Reno, Nevada to gas up again. He ordered all of the staff on the jet into the cockpit, but not before giving them very specific flight instructions. The pilot and co-pilot were to fly at 10,000 feet at 150 knots, so that someone skydiving could have an easy time. Somewhere about 25 miles north of Portland, there was a bump from the back of the jet, and the cabin was depressurized. And the pilot made sure to make note of this, but no one wanted to make Cooper mad or edgy, so they stayed in the cockpit until they landed in Reno. When they exited the cockpit, Cooper was gone, and the stairs at the back of the jet had been lowered, indicating that Cooper took the bag and jumped. Most people think that he jumped when the staff felt the bump from the back of the jet, so he exited the craft somewhere in the Pacific Northwest, specifically somewhere near Portland. There are several important factors about when Cooper chose to jump that affect his survival rate. First, the jet was flying at night, so the visibility wasn't great already, but they happened to be flying through a thunderstorm, so conditions were worse than usual. Secondly, they were flying over dense forest near the Columbia River, so the chances of him having a rough landing were increased. And third, Cooper was wearing a suit and fancy shoes, which, if you're unacquainted with skydiving, isn't the prime attire for aerodynamicism and protection. Cooper was described as wearing makeup by one of the flight attendants, and his hair was black and shiny, as if he had recently dyed it. When he briefly took off his sunglasses, a stewardess described him as having brown eyes, but it was only for an instant, and she could have been wrong. He was said to have no distinct accent, and he left several pieces of evidence, like a hair and a clip-on tie, but DNA analysis was still in its infancy, if it was being used at all. So authorities were unable to get any conclusive DNA evidence. You, you might remember I said the man went by the name Dan Cooper, and the name associated with this case is D.B. Cooper. This is because a reporter misheard the authorities talking about Dan Cooper and thought they were saying D.B. And to be fair, D.B. Cooper is a much better criminal name than Dan Cooper, so it stuck. Also note that either way, the name was most likely fake, like most other things about Mr. Cooper. The manhunt that ensued was one of the largest up to that point in FBI history. The FBI spent thousands, if not millions of dollars to find and arrest D.B. Cooper, but they never did. One of the largest and clearest pieces of evidence found in the hunt for Cooper was about nine years later in 1980. 
Brian Ingram, an eight-year-old boy, found about $6,000 on the bank of the Columbia River, pretty close to where experts think Cooper jumped out of the plane. The serial numbers on the bills matched the ones given to Cooper, so this isn't conjecture. This is confirmed to have been Cooper's contraband. A recent development has come up from French Canada, and it's kind of a weird one. A fictional French-Canadian comic book hero and Royal Canadian Air Force member called Dan Cooper appears on the front of one of his books falling from the sky with a parachute. This comic came out shortly before the hijacking and honestly could have served as an inspiration for Cooper. Now, there are three suspects that I'm going to cover for you, but the FBI eliminated over 800 suspects from the case with no solid evidence to arrest anyone or say for sure who did it. Could he have been one of these men? Or, like the MCU suggests, could Cooper have been the Norse god of trickery, Loki? Could he have been an alien or a time traveler? Probably not, but that's fun to think about. The first suspect, and the one that I like the best for Cooper's true identity, is Richard McCoy Jr., who was arrested not long after Cooper's air robbery for another air robbery, and but he didn't get away like Cooper did. On April 7, 1972, McCoy boarded a Boeing 747, like Cooper, headed for Newark, New Jersey, to Los Angeles, California, uh, but it had stopped in Denver uh, to refuel. A few minutes after they were heading back on their way, a stewardess was told that a man on board the jet was holding a grenade. She investigated, saw that it was true, or at least it looked like it was true, and notified the pilot. An undercover pilot walked through the jet, but McCoy grabbed him and told him to give a note to the stewardess to give to the cockpit. The note essentially said that McCoy wanted $500,000 and four parachutes, or he would blow up the jet and everyone on it. The staff, of course, complied and landed in San Francisco, California, where United Airlines officials would give McCoy the money. McCoy then let the passengers go and told the crew to fly at 16,000 feet at 250 miles per hour over Utah communities, which sounds a lot like what Cooper did. McCoy bailed, bailed out and resumed his normal life. Handwriting experts were able to match his handwriting to the notes given to the crew, and McCoy was arrested after authorities found $499,970 at his house, along with other incriminating evidence. And part of me really wants to know what he spent that $30 on. What could it have been? Was it like a trampoline? Did he buy a trampoline with his new $500,000? <sighs> I really hope it wasn't. I really hope it was something better. Um, McCoy, if you bought a trampoline, shame on you. And they found other incriminating evidence there, too. McCoy later escaped prison and was killed in a shootout with the police without ever confessing to have been D.B. Cooper. Now, there are problems with McCoy being Cooper, although McCoy looks very similar to the sketch of Cooper, which is famous in the Cooper community. Firstly, McCoy was around 29 at the time of the Cooper hijacking, while Cooper himself was described as being in his 40s, maybe 45, 46. Secondly, McCoy was on leave from the military during Cooper's hijacking and was visiting family in the Utah and Nevada area, so he was nowhere near Oregon or Washington. Uh... A lot of what McCoy did does sound like Cooper's antics, but part of me thinks that McCoy just read the details about Cooper's hijacking and decided to mirror his behavior. Um, he did jump out of the plane, just like Cooper, 
but he had a flight suit and a helmet and stuff on. Um, and he used a parachute. But he was able to conclusively hit the ground and start running. Uh, authorities never found Cooper's body. So he could have died, but, you know, where's the body? The second suspect is Dwayne Weber, who supposedly confessed on his deathbed to being D.B. Cooper, but this is highly debated about its legitimacy. Weber died in 1995 from kidney disease, but not before telling his wife of 17 years, quote, I'm Dan Cooper. The authorities looked at Weber for being a suspect because he had both a military and criminal past, but he was never apprehended in connection with Cooper. Weber may have had military training, but he didn't have parachute training, and his fingerprints also didn't match those found on the Boeing 747 that Cooper hijacked, or the DNA evidence later found on a clip-on tie that Cooper left on the jet. And everything about Cooper seems like he's this suave criminal that can get away with anything. But he was wearing a clip-on tie? Come on, DB. You can do better than that. I mean, to commit this level and this perfect of a crime and you 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 don't take the time to put on a real tie ridiculous um the third and final suspect i want to bring up is sheridan peterson a former engineer for boeing and an extremely experienced skydiver even having done a jump jump in a suit tie and oxford shoes much like cooper Peterson also looks very similar to the composite sketch of Cooper, especially in the nose area. Peterson was never interviewed in connection with Cooper until the early 2000s, and his alibi for where he was during the hijacking was supposedly pretty weak. I don't know exactly what it was, but it seems like it was something about him being in Nepal with his family. Uh, Peterson would have been around 44 years old at the time of Cooper's heist and was from the northwestern United States, so he could have been familiar with this area. The thing that throws me off, though, Peterson lived a very charitable life, often being involved with causes like protesting the Tiananmen Square massacre and was very involved in the civil rights movement. If Peterson had been Cooper, one might argue that he made up for the relatively harmless skyjacking. Nobody got hurt, after all. A lot of people were scared and a lot of money was stolen, but uh, yeah, it wasn't a violent crime. The bomb could have even been fake. Who knows? Without metal detectors in the airport, it was a lot easier to hypothetically sneak a bomb onto a plane. Uh, And that makes for better stories. Cooper's case remains unsolved to this day, and is the only unsolved case of sky piracy in history, I believe. Some see Cooper as sort of a Robin Hood-type figure, or at least a folk hero. He was able to commit what seems like the perfect crime, and managed to escape completely. That is, if he didn't die in the wilderness after a risky jump. Could Cooper have died? Maybe, but no one has ever found the body. I like to think Cooper made it out, and has been living all of these years off the grid with his hard-earned cash. Who knows, though? Maybe D.B. Cooper will live on in history as one of America's most famous unsolved mysteries. Content warning coming up. This is the second half of the double feature, and I will be talking about uh, crime scene details, including death uh, and sometimes mutilation and gore. So if you 
are not a fan of that, then you can skip this part. I'm going to try to make it uh, as family-friendly as I can, but some details are going to slip through. So, if you're not a fan, uh, just, just skip this part, uh, and I'll see you next week. So, an early bye-bye to you. Bye. Now, let's get into the second part of our unsolved mystery double feature uh, history episode. That flowed, right? That was cool. What I just did. That was cool, right? <laughs> right. Um, on the night of February 1st, 1959, nine Russian university students hiking in the Russian wilderness met one of the most mysterious and gruesome fates in Russian and world history. The leader of the group, Igor Dyatlov, gave the mystery its name, the Dyatlov Pass Incident. What happened? Well, Russia has opened two separate investigations, one after the original incident and one much later in 2019, but either they don't know or they aren't telling. Or they're as stumped as the rest of the world. Nobody really knows. Igor Dyatlov, Yuri Doroshenko, Lyudmila Dubinina, Yuri... Krivoneshenko, Alexander Sergeyevich, Zineda Kolmogrova, Rustem Slobodin, and Nikolai Thibault Brignol. I hope I got all those right. Um, I don't know if you can't tell uh, or not, but I don't speak Russian. Uh, and the Russian alphabet is very dissimilar to the uh, English alphabet. So I was guessing on most of those. Uh, and if you are a Russian listener or someone of Russian heritage, I do apologize uh, that I butchered those names. But, you know, have a little grace, maybe. I don't know. That's all I'm asking. Anyway, these students, um, they were accompanied by an older man, Semyon Zolotaryov, who was more than 10 years older than the students and had served Russia in World War II. I think the reason he was there was because he was an experienced guide and could help the students if they got into a jam. There was another student, Yuri Yudin, who left the trip early because of back pain due to sciatica. Uh, and that's very fortunate for him. Not in the moment, I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure he was kind of disappointed and his back was definitely hurting. But uh, overall, that's way better for him that he sat out of this one. And it will become clear very soon why. Uh, during the Cold War, Russia encouraged its students to compete in challenges to prove that they were better and stronger than American students. Or at least, that's what I got from the research. One of the ways they did this was to encourage competitive hiking and skiing through the harsh Siberian wastes. And this was the kind of expedition that Dyotlov, the Dyotlov group engaged in. Something to remember is that the hike was government-approved. So the government probably didn't want to sabotage the students. Uh, just, just remember that for later. The expedition started in the later days of January and was planned to be about three weeks or so of hiking and survivalist stuff and skiing, uh, but that wouldn't work out. The last day the group was close to civilization was January 27th when they spent the night in a town called Vijay. I think that's how you pronounce it. And were gearing up to head to another place called Gora Otorten. Otorten. Gora Otorten in the Ural Mountains. 
The next day, after some hiking, Yuri Yudin had to st- had to drop out and stop hiking because his body hurt with with the sciatica, and I think he also had some stuff like congenital heart disease. Um, I read that in a few reports, but there was conflicting evidence here and there. So I think that he had some other stuff going on with him. Uh, after Yudin left, the others continued hiking for a few days with people taking pictures and making diary entries. So some of the events leading up to the tragedy are documented, but the event itself remains a mystery. After waiting until February 12th, Yuri Yudin began to become concerned because everyone else hadn't come back yet. Uh, But expeditions like this sometimes hit snags, so he waited. Eventually, after a few more days, the government sent out a search party for the missing hikers, and what they found didn't make any sense. The tent the students had been staying in was slashed open from the inside, and evidence that the students had all escaped into the negative 20 degree Fahrenheit conditions uh, was all over. There was a track leading down the hill from their uh, campsite. The weird part was the trails leading away from the tent indicated that no one was wearing shoes and a lot of the clothing that the people were encouraged to wear in the negative 20 degree Fahrenheit conditions were in the tent. They'd left them. Uh, Also found inside the tent were the students' clothes and a meal set out, as if they were eating when something happened. Down the hill from the tent, searchers found the bodies of Yuri Doroshenko and Yuri Krivonyshenko at the base of a tree on February 27th. They were sitting around a long extinguished campfire, and branches were missing several feet up the tree, leading people to believe that one of the hikers climbed up and got fuel for the fire. Yuri Doroshenko was found with a burn on the side of his head. His ear, nose, and lips were covered in blood. Gray foam was found coming out of his mouth, and his right cheek was covered in it. He was found with several bruises on his arms and torso. His fingers and toes had heavy frostbite damage, which would have required amputation if he had survived. The official cause of death was listed as hypothermia, but this doesn't account for the bruises. Experts say that the cuts and bruises on his body may have been from because he was hitting himself with rocks and ice in a state of agony, or that he may have fallen from the tree. Now, I don't know uh, how scientific this is. I think this has happened uh, in recorded history before, but supposedly, uh, sometimes when people get hypothermia and they're so cold they can't stand it, they just start hitting themselves uh, with whatever is around. And in... Doroshenko's case, rocks and solid chunks of ice. Which doesn't sound fun to me. Um, but, you know, that's just me. Uh, Yuri Krivonashenko was also found with bruises and cuts all over his body, but that's not the weird part. Parts of his own skin were found in his mouth, and the tip of his nose was missing, probably because an animal got it post-mortem. He also had frostbite on his ears, fingers, and toes, but he had burns on his fingers and toes. Searchers theorized that the two students had placed their frostbitten appendages into the campfire to try to warm them, but the frostbite had caused them not to feel the burning. Krivonashenko's cause of death was listed as hypothermia as well, and the skin in his mouth could have been because he was biting himself to try to stay awake, or because he was stifling a cry. 
Maybe he didn't want to be noticed by someone or something. Igor Dyatlov was found later that day about 300 meters or less than 1,000 feet from the tree Doroshenko and Krivonashenko were found under. He was crawling toward the tree and the campsite. He had injuries, which could have been from a fist fight. Bruises on his knuckles were the main evidence for this, uh, but he also had bruises and cuts all over his body. Dyatlov's cause of death was recorded as hypothermia, but did the bruises mean that there were some sort of altercation before his death? Zineda Kolmogrova was found another 300 meters or so behind Dyatlov, crawling like he was back to the relative safety of the campfire. She had less injuries than some of the other hikers, but she maintained cuts and bruises all the same. She too had frostbite, and her official cause of death was hypothermia as well. The one odd thing about Kolmogrova's body was a long bruise on the side of her torso, consistent with bruising left behind from a baton or some sort. Was she involved in the same fight Dyotlov got his injuries in? Rustam Slobodin was found some days later on March 5th, about 480 meters from the tree the, two, the first two students were found under. Slobodin had injuries also consistent with a fistfight, but he was worse off than Dyotlov when he died. Part of his skull had been fractured, so he had been hit hard with a blunt object of some sort. Evidence shows that he may have fallen down many times after the initial blow to his head since there was evidence of scratches and bruises around his face and blood coming from his nose. His official cause of death was also hypothermia, even with a giant blunt force trauma injury to his head, his brain area, which is sort of important for life. Um, the remaining four victims were found near a snow den in a ravine, uh, and, and it was close to the cedar tree the rest of the bodies were found nearby. This indicates that the students were in their right minds enough to build a sort of temporary shelter. They were found later, May 5th, than the bodies ne near the tree. Lyudmila Dubinina was found lying face down on a natural ledge of sorts made of rock with water running down it, which, that's a weird pose for her to be in, especially in death. Her eyes, tongue, lips, and bits of her face were missing, uh, which is frankly horrific to think about. Some people think that the soft tissues were destroyed more quickly than the rest because the rest of her face er, and her body because of the water. The, it was just, it just kept running and it could have sort of eroded her face, which is awful. Um, or maybe a scavenger animal of some sort, um, like a buzzard or some other bird of prey. Um, they got to her before the scavenger, uh, the searchers did. Um, at least six of her ribs had been broken on both sides with some sort of massive force, and there was a truly massive hemorrhage in her heart. During her initial autopsy, 100 grams of mucosal mass were found in her stomach, which was mistaken for blood, which would have indicated that she had probably been alive when her tongue was removed. Yeesh. Uh, Dubinina was found with Yuri Krivonashenko's jacket, which, get this, this is very weird. It registered radioactivity. And that adds another complex layer to the mystery. Why? Why was it setting off a Geiger counter? 
odd. Semyon Zolotorov, the oldest man in the group, was found with a pen and notepad in his hands and a camera around his neck. He hadn't written anything down, and the film and his camera had sustained water damage, so there were no usable prints. Oh, and his eyes were also missing, uh, and some tissues from his face were gone. He also had an open wound on the side of his head, and he had five broken ribs. He had injuries very similar to Dubonina's, leading some people to theorize that they were injured by the same thing. Their injuries are consistent with a bomb blast, but no one can be sure. No shrapnel was found at the crime scene that the government told the Russian citizens about, anyway. Um, in the autopsy, uh, these broken ribs were attributed to something with the force of a car crash. Like if a, a truck going at a decent speed had hit these people, that could have broken their ribs like that. But there were no cars out there. So a bomb sort of makes sense, maybe? I don't know. Uh, Alexander Kolevatov was found with the others, but his death is less consistent with hypothermia because of something odd in his autopsy report. Experts said that he had a, quote, deformed neck, which might be what killed him. He also had a wound behind his ear. These two things are consistent with methods used by Russian special forces to kill enemies, though this theory has never been confirmed. His injuries could also be linked to the injuries sustained by the other members of the party who could have been in fistfights. Finally, Nikolai Thibault Brignol was hit in the head with something. Hard. Multiple fractures to his temporal bone would have caused a concussion, if not immediate death. Experts theorize that he was either thrown violently against something, or he was hit in the head with a large rock or some other blunt instrument. I'm pretty sure this guy didn't die of hypothermia. Um, so now that we've covered the ways that the, the bodies were found and their causes of death investigated, let's go over some theories about how they could have died. Now, I have to say, these are just theories. The true cause of death and why they left their tent may forever be a mystery to everyone, except maybe a few Russian officials. Um... First of all, the avalanche theory uh, states that a large amount of snow came down a hill the hikers were camped nearby. Uh, a slab avalanche is essentially a large brick of highly compressed snow that could hit someone like a truck. Like I said earlier, the official cause of death for the students not killed by hypothermia was, quote, a compelling natural force, which could have been an avalanche. The snow could have piled up in front of the exit of the tent, leading to someone to slice open the tent, and everyone made a quick exit. They could have also heard an avalanche coming and wanted to get out quickly, uh, only for them to be hit with the avalanche. Now, this is, I guess, the most natural theory, but it's also kind of boring, you know? Uh, this is a huge mystery, and people want to attribute it to an avalanche? That's just not very creative of them, and I don't like it. Uh, it's, it's, it's just not compelling enough to be the true reason behind this mystery. Uh, another one of the explanations I like the best is that the Russian government was testing some sort of secret weapon out in Siberia, and the Dyotlov group accidentally stumbled upon a testing site. Now, this might account for the strange behavior and also 
some burns on nearby trees, which could have been from a very hot, very directed energy, like a laser. This could also account for the blunt force trauma inflicted to several members of the party, like the radioactivity uh, and the radioactivity found on some of the clothing. The only problem is, like I said earlier, why would the Russian government, who is encouraging these kids to compete and show that they are physically superior, tell them to cross the path of weapons testing? It doesn't make any sense in that way. And it could be possible that they went off course um, and accidentally stumbled upon this site. Uh, and some of the theories put forth are that uh, the government was testing um, parachute bombs that would come down and explode in midair, sending shockwaves or, you know, matter uh, just flying. And they could have hit these people and caused these injuries. But, again, where's the shrapnel? Where's the parachutes, for that matter? There are too many things left unaccounted for. Uh, another possible explanation involves a nearby tribe of people called the Mansi, who are notoriously cut off from society and so, by default, are pretty mysterious. According to some theorists, the Mansi tribe found out that the hikers were on their land uh, and killed them. There's been a lot of speculation about the Mansi people, and several Mansi were interviewed in connection with the deaths, but none of them confessed. The Mansi are a pe mostly peaceful people, so they would have had no reason to kill the Dyatlov group. In addition to this, there were no other footprints found in or around the campsite, so unless they covered their tracks very well, there's no solid proof that anyone else was in the camp. Um, the Monsi are excellent at survival out in Siberia, so theoretically, theoretically, they could have covered their tracks, but they had no real reason to harm these kids. Um, unless you count the theory that I'm going to give you in a few minutes, uh, that... It's very Indiana Jones, but it might be true. Probably not, but it might be. Uh, so now that we've heard some of the possible explanations, let, let's look at some of the weirder ones. How about it? Uh, now, Russia is located near the Himalayas, and who do we know that could do this kind of damage and also lives in an inhospitable, negative-degree environment? That's right, episode one star, The Yeti. Of course, there are theories uh, and stories about Bigfoot all across the world, and if you didn't know that after you finished this episode, go listen to the first episode about Bigfoot. There is a quote-unquote documentary about the Russian Yeti called something like Russian Yeti the Killer Lives or, or, or something like that. Um, and it focuses on the Dyatlov Pass incident as evidence of a violent, hairy, wild man coming from Russia. The Monsi people I mentioned earlier also have wild hairy man legends about a giant who lives in the forest called the Mank. It is a nature spirit or something similar, and it falls under the category of Bigfoot adjacent, according to me. Uh, could the hikers have been killed by a Russian Bigfoot? This would provide an explanation for the brutality of some of the deaths, but it wouldn't explain a whole lot of other things, like a lack of other footprints around the bodies, and why two people were missing their eyeballs and various other things. Do yetis eat eyeballs? I suppose we'll never really know because, like I said, I'm sort of Bigfoot agnostic. Uh, so, I honestly, I don't think that he did it. 
He could have, but I don't think so. Another less plausible theory, the one uh, I'm a fan of, uh, is that this incident was an alien abduction gone wrong. The radioactivity of the jacket and the burns on the trees could have been explained by extraterrestrial activity, and the strangeness and inconclusiveness of the deaths could also be explained away by things we simply don't understand. There's not a whole lot of evidence to support this one, but, you know, and I can't think of a reason aliens would need to kill people with blunt force trauma, but it's something to consider. I mean, they wouldn't, they probably wouldn't leave any evidence behind, uh because they're aliens and we don't understand them um yeah probably not aliens but maybe if you're looking for an explanation you know why count this one out uh the final weird explanation and probably my favorite starts with with uh russian mythology which i'm not going to get into as much uh depth with as the last episode about irish mythology which i hope you liked by the way i hope you enjoyed that Uh, Thousands of years ago, when the Greeks were at the height of their power, the Russians were also doing stuff. One story that has survived the ages tells about a massive statue made of pure gold hidden somewhere in the Ural Mountains, which is where Dyatlov's group was. Stories say that the Golden Baba, or Golden Woman, is a magical statue, much like the South South American statue El Dorado, and it has the power to teleport itself if it's captured. Stories also say that it can roar to scare off potential fortune seekers. Not only is the statue magical, but it also has magical guardians or priests that stand vigil around it to make sure it's not taken. The Golden Baba is also often featured in Monsi folklore, so this could be a potential connection. Did the hikers get too close to finding this mysterious golden statue so the guardians or the Monsi people had to kill them to keep their secret? Probably not, like I said. Uh, but this is my favorite implausible theory. It's, it, like I said, it's very Indiana Jones. It's very Uncharted, if you've ever played that series. Uh, one of my favorites. I, I love, uh, Uncharted and Nathan Drake. Um, so, that's the Dyatlov Pass incident. No one really knows how these kids died unless someone high up in the Russian government does, in which case they'll probably never admit to it since it was most likely the result of weapons testing gone wrong. You know, then they'd have to admit guilt, which I don't think they would do, uh, much like many governments I could name. Uh, But I won't, because I don't want to get in trouble with the uh, American government. Did I I say the American government? Uh, uh, No, I didn't didn't mean that. Uh, The American government has never done anything wrong, and it respects its people, and it would never, uh, never do anything like this. Uh, I hope that covers uh, me, and I hope that they don't come looking for me uh, because I disrespected them. I didn't disrespect them, actually. I didn't say anything uh, about that, and I would never. uh, I would never because there's nothing wrong with this country. Uh, Well, folks, that's the show. As always, if you have any comments or criticisms, let me know via email, which is charlesstone075 at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. I hope you have an excellent week. And as always, it's whatever.